Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Season 5, Episode 3 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. My name is Ben Miller. I'm a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And my name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. Last week, we talked about Joe Carstairs, a dashing, gender non-binary speedboat racer who dated Marlena Dietrich and ruled a private island in the Bahamas alongside a foot-tall stuffed leather doll. <laughs> who are we talking about this week, Hugh? Well, the name of today's subject probably won't be familiar to most um, or any of our listeners, and it's not really a surprise. He was a, an unremarkable and perhaps even mediocre man in his life, and would in all likelihood have been forgotten by history were it not for his death. For it was the manner of his death that would trigger one of European history's darkest chapters. Today's subject is the German diplomat Ernst von Rath. Um, but let's talk a little bit about his life before we get to his death, because Despite it being unremarkable, it still holds a symbolic importance because it was what he was and what he stood for that made his death so important. Ernst Eduard von Rath was born in 1909 into Wilhelmine, Germany. For German conservatives, this was something of a golden age of imperial, technical and cultural prowess. In the 1870s, the newly unified German Reich really began to turbocharge its colonialist ambitions in order to help support the ongoing industrialization of the new nation. Under the so-called culture camp, there was this attempt to remove the power of the Catholic Church from German society, and there was also a general ongoing process of consolidation within the boundaries of the new nation, the lesser Germany, as opposed to this idea of this greater Germany that was implicit in the community of German-speaking peoples across Central and Eastern Europe. Germany was a constitutional monarchy, and under the parliamentary system, there were social reforms, including the birth of a welfare state, as part of this very paternalistic notion that was propagated by Bismarck, who had unified the nation, sort of everyone in its place, but we look after the less fortunate. There was also the emancipation of Jews, giving them full access to the civil and legal rights that had begun in various German states following the liberal revolutions of 48 to 49, and it was made universal upon unification. But as with most of these sort of things, um, it being written down in law doesn't necessarily mean that it passes into sort of, um, <laughs> that it comes to pass, I guess. And also this emancipation was countered by an upsurge in anti-Semitism, both in culture and in publishing, um, but also in the parliamentary system. Uh, it was also in this environment, as we've discussed uh, on the show before, that the idea of homosexuality, of the, the homosexual as a, a social sexual identity as we understand it today, was first tentatively named. Unlike the Republic, the Weimar Republic that followed the war, the First World War, um, the Second Empire was a time of conservative hegemony, an attempt to control and suppress the radical social transformation um, that was sort of in the air in Europe with a traditional strict social order. And Ernst von Rath was, from birth, very firmly lodged in the upper echelons of this society. He was born into an aristocratic family in Frankfurt in 1909. His father, Gustav, was a lawyer who worked in the civil service, and the extended family owned a sugar factory, a large sugar factory in what is now uh, Wrocław in Poland, apologies for my pronunciation, that was then Breslau in, as part of Germany, that was started by Karl von Rath. Um, at the time, um, what we Germany at the time actually s spread into what is now um, Western Poland. Um, I think Ben can talk a bit more about that, actually. 
Yeah, I think it's important for those of our listeners to to know who don't uh, know uh, as much about German history. Um, large parts of what we now think of as being Eastern Poland were not only for a time part of Germany, but were in the sort of um, German and especially Prussian national imagination, really core territories of the Prussian Empire. Um, these were areas that had been controlled by the Prussian Empire since before the rule of Frederick the Great, um, and which were really, I mean, when, when Germany was reunified uh, sort of under the Prussian Empire, or into the existing Prussian Empire and under the, the Prussian Imperial Dynasty, uh, these areas were really very much a kind of core part of the, of the German territory. Um, and the class of Prussian nobles, and a lot of the political and psychological dysfunction of those Prussian nobles has a lot to do with the fact that they conceived of themselves as this kind of race of uh, noble German knights who were ruling over an inferior um, Slavic population. Uh, Marx called these Prussian nobles the cabbage Junkers, um, Junker coming from Jung Herr, the, like the young lords. Um, they had this it was a very feudal system of these very enormous estates, but unlike the enormous estates of France, because the land of this area is mostly sand, um, these were sort of um, not particularly luxurious, but still um, huge and authoritarian estates over which these these noblemen ruled. Yeah, and this is very much the sort of culture and society that, that von Rath was born into. And his family were very successful in it. Um, his relatives include the founder of Deutsche Bank, and his uncle, uh, I think his maternal uncle, was Roland Kirster, who was a high-ranking diplomat. Maybe I could take it up with them why Deutsche Bank, despite committing allegedly many financial crimes, somehow can't keep any of its branches open, something that I would like if they could do as, a, unfortunately, a customer of that institution. They might be related. Anyway, uh, Von Rath's childhood was, was pretty un unexceptional. Um, and then, like his father and his uncle, he, he studied law, passing his, his first exam in 1932 and becoming an apprentice at magistrate's courts, first in Zinter and then in Berlin. Um, and that same year, in 1932, aged 23, while he was still at university, he joined the Nazi party, which is, of course, prior to the Nazi, Nazi seizure, seizure of power in 1933, uh, something of an early adopter. Shortly after the Reichstag fire in February of 1933, when Hitler became the, uh, began the process of, um, of seizing total power in Germany, Ernst joined the Sturmabteilung, or SA, which is better known probably to us as the Brown Shirts, the sort of brawling, street-fighting paramilitaries of the Nazi party. There's no doubt about it then that at least at this stage of his life, while he was at university, Ernst von Rath was an ideological Nazi. In 1934, he decided to join a civil service following in the footsteps of his uncle, who was at this point the German ambassador to Paris. With his party membership and his relatives in high places, it must have felt like he was in a position for a very successful civil service career. And so it seemed he'd, he'd passed his training and his exams and he was sent to the embassy in Paris to serve as an attaché working under his uncle which must have been a very cushy deal for a young man at the time, acting as a, a personal secretary to his uncle, the, the ambassador, while living in one of the most exciting cities in the world, and he's still in his early to mid-20s. However, in 1934, his uncle died, and he was returned first to Berlin, and then he was sent to Calcutta, where uh, it seems he contracted dysentery, although, as we'll discover later, maybe that's not the case. 
He was then returned to Berlin and he recovered before then again claims that he comes down again with tuberculosis, which led to a, a period at a sanatorium. So after these few years of illness in 1938, he was well enough to return to work. So he was sent again to Paris that summer where he was put in charge of, of cultural affairs. Professional reports at the time sing the young man's praises. He's, he's not even 30 at this point. He's in his late 20s and he's regarded as, as this fastidious and very conscientious worker who got on very well with both embassy staff and, of course, with the Parisians amongst whom he was living, which is important for a, an embassy worker. The, the Nazi regime clearly suited the young man. So it's worth then contrasting his success with the lives of Jewish people under the Nazi regime at the time. Official persecution of Jews, Romani and other minorities had begun as soon as the Nazis seized power in 1933, building on their sort of um, campaigns when they were out of power against these, these populations. And these official measures included uh, boycotts against Jewish business, uh, prohibitions on Jews practicing in certain professions, law, for example, um, harassment, vandalism, assault, and occasionally murder. Laws were brought in as early as 1933, demanding the forcible sterilization of disabled people, people with mental illnesses, and also habitual criminals. And of course, the Nazis established concentration camps kind of from the get-go of taking power. These weren't the industrialized death camps that would come about at the start of the Second World War, but many would die in them from torture, starvation, and abuse. And the camps housed not just political dissidents, but other so-called asocials, um, addicts, vagrants, sex workers, and homosexuals. The SA, of which von Rath was a member, were integral to this campaign of terror against Jews in particular, and were to some extent a driving force within the party for more violence, more persecution. Some parts of the party were trying to rein in the SA for fear of ostracizing capitalist elements in German society, for whom disruption was a threat to business, and of course to Germany's international standing. Um, obviously, the motivation for anti-Semitism was not exclusive to the SA, it's core to the ideology of the German far right in general. Um, and, and after the purging of the SA and the suppression of the organisation as a, as a politically powerful tool in the Night of the Long Knives, which we've discussed before in, our, I think, our first ever episode on Ernst Rehm, uh, the anti-Semitic persecution continued, but, but it sort of took on a more legalistic bent with less official focus on street violence. One of the many uh, major instruments of power that was used in this persecution was the law. And in 1935, the Reichstag passed the Nuremberg Laws, and that these laws, amongst other things, codified who was Jewish, uh, who was, in their words, Mischling or mixed race, and who was Aryan. Uh, it prohibited marriage and sex between Jews and non-Jews, and it stripped Jews and black people of their German citizenship, quite crucially. So, yeah, these uh, and the, the degree of... Um scientism, I won't say science, but scientism, the sort of aesthetic appearance of science uh, in these laws is really remarkable. And I think underappreciated now how um, how these, these laws were very carefully written to indicate not the um, base bigotry that they represented, but instead to, to telegraph a kind of scientific legitimacy. Uh, so someone like me, a first a first class Michelin or a first grade Michelin, um, would have these very specific um, prohibitions, such that um, who I could reproduce with was very carefully 
um, designed so that within a few generations, the quote unquote Jewish blood would be bred out of the population. Um, yeah, and, and that, these uh, were also uh, ideas about these were also ideas about racial miscegenation that were evolving actually in dialogue with um, eugenicists and racists in France, in England, and in the United States. Yeah, I was going to say this. This is part of a sort of m- much wider general culture um, emerging from the Victorian era into the nineteen twenties and thirties about a sort of race science that was not unique in any way to the Nazi Party. Um, and um, there are parallels, of course, in in the United States with um, stuff like the one drop rule. Um, but it, it, here it was, I mean, in, in the United States, it was obviously codified in law as well, um, just like in Germany. But one of the aims of the, of the Nazi government at this time of these policies was to try to force Jews to emigrate from Germany. It was important for them, of course, however, to, to prevent Jews from taking any of their assets with them because this would cause economic problems. And so they imposed a 90% remittance, a sort of tax um, that was placed on anyone emigrating. So you could emigrate, they would try and make your life unbearable, force you to go, but you'd have to leave 90% of your assets, which made it untenable for a lot of people. At the same time, of course, um, Jewish immigration was was being discouraged by other European countries like the UK and the United States as well. So German Jews and Jews living in Germany were trapped between this this legal and social persecution that they faced this lack of citizenship, and then the cost of emigration. And as the persecution continued, more and more Jews decided to make the terrible decisions needed in order to leave, sacrificing their homes and businesses built up over over generations and centuries, often splitting families in order to get children out, or deciding um, which children they had the money to save and and using that money to save one or two children. Most of the non-German Jews living in, in Germany at the time were Polish, And the Polish government, which had also enacted a number of anti-Semitic laws and restrictions over the previous decades as well, was not pleased with the idea of tens of thousands of Polish Jews living in Germany returning to the country. In 1938, the Polish government passed a decree ordering that um, Polish passport holders outside the country must get a stamp in their passport in order for it to remain valid. Uh, And if they didn't, their Polish citizenship would be stripped. But when Jews then start to arrive at the Polish consulates in Germany, they were denied that stamp. So they were sort of having their Polish citizenship stripped de facto. The Nazis in turn realized that as a result, they'd have perhaps upwards of 70,000 stateless Polish Jews living on, uh, you know, living permanently in the Third Reich. So on the, on the eve of the Polish law coming into force, in late October 1938, the Germans rounded up 17,000 Polish Jews, they stripped them of their residency permits, they loaded them onto trains, and they shipped them to the Polish border in an operation called uh, Polenaktion. The the Polish refused them the right to enter, so tens of thousands of Jews were trapped in this no-man's land um, before being housed in makeshift refugee camps in, in often terrible conditions. And one of the families trapped in this hell caught between these two racist regimes was the Grinspan family. Uh, Sendel and uh, Rivka Grinspan had left Poland before the First World War to live in Hanover. Uh, Zendel had got work as a plumber. Uh, then he'd managed to set up a small business as a tailor, but their life wasn't easy. Their tailor's shop was um, shut, shut down as a result of Germany's economic collapse in the 20s. And they suffered rejection, not just from non-Jewish Germans, but also from Ger- some German Jews too, because of their sort of more orthodox, uh, Polish, um, less integrated lifestyles, and of course that they spoke Yiddish. 
Yeah, this was um, this was a huge kind of class distinction, um, and in in many ways remained one actually after the war. Um, this is also a class distinction that has a lot to do with people's pre World War II and pre Shoah support for uh, the Zionist project or not. Um, the Zionist project tended to come from um, the more elite, uh, integrated German speaking Jews for whom. It was the idea, like you would, you would prove that you were a true European by building the Zionist colony in the former Holy Land, whereas the more working class Yiddish-speaking Jews tended to be part of a Bundist uh, political movement, the Jewish Labor Bund, the slogan of which was, um, wherever we are, this here is our country, uh, and which tended to focus more on how Jews could and should be part of other kinds of uh, multi-issue political struggles. And then um, the the experience of the Shoah seemed to settle that question, um, but the Bund and its sort of legacies um, last definitely until until today. Although, as we'll we'll discover, there's there's tendencies within both um, within both parties either way. Because um, well, so so the um, the Grinspans had, um, had between 1911 and 1921, it had six six children, but only three of them survived into adulthood. Uh, Esther, Mordecai, and Herschel, the youngest. And as I mentioned before, many Jews were desperate to get their kids out of Germany, and the Grinspans were, were no different. But Esther and Mordecai both had jobs as a secretary and as a plumber, so they were sort of needed to help keep the household on uh, on the go. Um, but Mordecai, sorry, uh, but Herschel was still very young; he was in his early teens, and so the family decided to try and get him to Palestine um, as part of the Sinus project. Uh, the Jewish community in Hanover helped pay for him uh, as a 14-year-old to go to a yeshiva, a Jewish educational institution in Frankfurt, where he began training um, and the sort of preparation necessary to become a sort of young recruit in Palestine. After a year, he was ready to leave, but he couldn't get the requisite visa because he was still too young. And he was sort of frustrated by this, so he tried to find work, but he couldn't find work because of the anti-Semitism that was a sort of constant part of daily life in, in Germany. So with his papers in order, he, he promised the German authorities that he was still preparing to leave for Palestine. He managed to get an exit visa to Belgium. He stayed for a short while with his uncle, Wolf Grinspan, before illegally crossing the border into France, where he made to Paris to stay with another uncle, Abraham Grinspan. Abraham, like his brother Zendel, was a, a tailor by trade. And with his wife, Chewa, uh, they welcomed Herschel like the child that they never had. Life as a teenage refugee living illegally in a city where you don't speak the language must be alienating at the best of times, and Herschel found it very hard. Not only was he devoutly religious, but he had long been a sickly child, and the stress of his escape had brought on a stomach ulcer. He looked young, even for his age. He had these big, mournful eyes with, with big lashes, and he was something of a young poet, and he was concerned of his people's history and his persecution. Uh, and especially with the Dreyfus affair that he learned about when he arrived in France. Um, and he, the, the, this was a sort of anti-Semitic political scandal um, in, in France that had seen a young Jewish military officer, Alfred Dreyfus, unfairly labelled a, a traitor and spy and imprisoned. Uh, and it became um, a, something that Herschel thought about and talked about a lot. And he would walk the streets composing and sort of reciting Yiddish poetry to himself. He did make some friends and some acquaintances, um, and he was starting to explore his 
young adult life. He, he frequented cinemas, dance halls, bars, uh, including occasionally a bar on Boulevard Saint-Denis called Tuva Bien that was popular with gay men at the time. His uncle Abraham started to try and regularize his immigration status, applying for the right to remain. But in the interim, both Herschel's Polish passport and his German exit visa had expired. He managed to get a new Polish passport, but it lacked the re-entry visa to Germany. And on, apply, uh, on applying for it, the German government refused to issue it because he'd said that he was um, in uh, Belgium and preparing to preparing to go to Palestine. Anyway, meanwhile, his uncle's attempts to regularise his residency in France also failed, so he was ordered to leave France. So what was he to do? He'd lived his whole life in Germany, but couldn't go back. And aside from uh, aside from his grandparents, he didn't really know anyone in Poland. He'd been raised in Germany. He spoke very little Polish, just Yiddish. But he couldn't stay in Paris or return to Germany. He briefly considered joining the Foreign Legion and uh, borrowed some money to do it. But it seemed unlikely given his sort of slight build and his stomach complaints. He even considered suicide. But in the end, he simply became one of the many paperless refugees who were sort of forced to slip under the radar and struggle on the margins of society while being hunted by the authorities, something that still happens today, of course. It was October 1938, and Herschel was a paperless 17-year-old living in Paris. And it was at this moment that he received a letter from his sister, his mother and father and his brother and sister had been called by the German authorities to the police station in Hanover. There, along with about 500 other Hanoverian Polish Jews, they'd been put onto trains and sent to the Polish border before being unloaded into fields. The SS then chased them with whips, driving them towards the border where they became refugees in these refugee camps. And Herschel was understandably horrified by this news. On the 7th of November, Herschel awoke in the hotel room that he'd taken using some money from his uh, uncle Abraham. He drank a coffee and he took out a postcard that he had. On the front was a photograph of himself in a three-piece suit. On the back, he wrote in Hebrew, with God's help, before continuing in German, My dear parents, I could not do otherwise. May God forgive me. The heart bleeds when I hear of your tragedy and that of the 12,000 Jews. I must protest so that the whole world hears my protest, and that I w- and that I will do. Forgive me. He signed it Herman, the German name that his friends and family used for him, and then he slipped it into his pocket. He paid for the hotel breakfast, and then he walked to Monsieur Karp's uh, gun store, where he bought a revolver and twenty-five bullets. He went to the cafe Tuva Bien, and he went to a toilet stall, and there he loaded the chamber of the revolver with five bullets. He left and went to Strasbourg-Saint-Denis Metro, where he boarded a train. He changed at Madeleine and took another train to Solferino. He alighted there and walked one block to the German embassy at 78 Rue de Lille. This was the very place where, over 40 years earlier, the theft of a letter to the military attaché at the embassy had started the Dreyfus affair. Herschel told the receptionist he had an important document he needed to hand over to an official from the embassy. The receptionist led him to a room and opened the door. Behind the desk sat Ernst von Rath. The receptionist left. So, let me see the document, von Rath demanded. Herschel reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out the revolver, the price tag still dangling from it. You're a filthy kraut, he responded. And in the name of 12,000 persecuted Jews, here is my document. He unloaded all five chambers of the gun, hitting him in the stomach, spleen and pancreas. 
According to Herschel, Von Rath clutched his stomach and called him a dirty Jew before stumbling to the door to call for help. When the embassy staff arrived, Herschel was seized without a fight and handed straight to the French police at the embassy gate. There must have been a moment of quiet reflection while Herschel was taken to the police precinct and Rath was taken by ambulance to a nearby private hospital where Herschel felt like he'd had his vengeance for the Jews. But that moment can't have lasted very long. As soon as the news reached Berlin, all the organs of the Third Reich set the wheels turning to make this a propaganda coup for Nazi Germany. Immediately, Hitler dispatched his own personal physician, physician, the murderous Dr. Karl Brandt, to Paris to help Rath. He was hemorrhaging blood into his stomach, and despite sutures and um, blood transplants, the situation was grim. And also, it does appear that Karl Brandt sort of made no real effort to save him, realising that a, a dead diplomat is a better martyr than a, an injured one. Roth's parents arrived uh, the following day to Paris by train, and there they would have heard the news that Hitler had promoted Roth, ostensibly as an honour, but in reality to sort of heighten the propaganda value of his impending death. The headline under Volkischer Beobachter, the official Nazi newspaper, read, quote, Member of the German embassy critically wounded by shot. The murdering knave, a 17-year-old Jew. The shots in Paris will not go unpunished. The following day, Hitler was in Munich celebrating the other Nazi propaganda victory, the failed Beer Hall Putsch. It was the 15th anniversary of the failed coup, and a messenger entered the Altus Rathaus, the old town hall, that was packed with fighters and veterans from the Nazi street fighting days, mainly SA members, and he whispered in Hitler's ear that von Rath was dead. Hitler apparently turned to Goebbels, his propaganda minister, and said, the SA should be allowed to have its fling. Goebbels would write in his diary, for once the Jews should feel the rage of the people. But even this incident in itself is propaganda, because Hitler actually knew of von Rath's death before the event began uh, in the in the Rathaus. And so from this point on, von Rath's life and Grinspan's life would become weapons of a culture, uh, sorry, of a propaganda war. For the Nazis, it was the perfect storyline for a campaign of what today we would call disinformation. They were hinting at the idea that von Rath, a, a patriotic German working in the service of his country, was cut down not by a lone gunman, but as part of a wider conspiracy orchestrated by what they would call world jury or international jury. At the town hall, Goebbels rose to speak. Quote, Ernst von Rath was a good German, a loyal servant of the Reich, working for the good of our people in our embassy in Paris. Do I need to tell you the, dirt, the race of the dirty swine who committed this foul deed? A Jew. Tonight he lays in jail in Paris, claiming that he acted on his own, that he had no instigators in this awful deed behind him. But we know better, don't we? Comrades, we cannot allow this attack by international jury to go unchallenged. It must be repudiated. Our people must be told, and their answer must be ruthless, forthright, salutary. I ask you to listen to me, and together we must plan what, what is to be our answer to Jewish murder and the threat of international jury to our glorious German Reich. According to the historian Saul, uh, Saul Friedlander, it was really Goebbels who was the main driver and instigator of what was to happen that night following this speech. Uh, he claims that not only was Hitler unhappy with the effectiveness of the German propaganda campaign during the recent Sudetenland crisis, um, despite the Germans actually winning in the end. And also he was angry due to Goebbels' recent affair with a Czech actress, 
which Hitler had put an end to when Goebbels had expressed his intention to divorce his wife, Magda, and Hitler was particularly fond of Magda Goebbels. Whatever the reason, Goebbels saw an opportunity, not just for himself, but for increasing the intensity and the form of the Nazi persecution of the Jews. Um, one of the books I referred to, actually, for this episode, uh, written by Gerald Schwab, is called The Day the Holocaust Began, which is perhaps um, yeah, a useful way of looking at it, because although Nazi persecution of the Jews had obviously started in the early 1920s, well before they'd even seized power, it was this day that sort of brought together this early SA violence against the Jews with the later state power that the Nazis had captured. And while there was violence against Jews, obviously well before the state, this marked this whole-scale change in the emphasis of the fascist regime from legal discrimination and persecution to sort of a campaign of terror um, and a combination of state power and violence. The SA leaders who were gathered at the town hall implicitly knew their orders Goebbels had been hoping for an upsurge of anti-Semitic violence to have come, quote-unquote, naturally from the the general population in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, but it it hadn't come, save for a few ad hoc SA attacks. But immediately following his speech, SA units across the country were mobilised to launch a pogrom against Germany's Jewish population, and the night would come to be known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. Officially, the, the party kept a deniable distance from the events, but orders were given out that neither the police nor the fire service were to intervene to stop the attacks or to put out any fires in synagogues. And in the aftermath, the order was given not to prosecute any of the perpetrators, even for murder of Jewish people, except in a few um, extreme circumstances. Hitler ordered, sorry, Himmler ordered that the police were only to intervene if German life or property was at risk, and that Jewish businesses were not to be destroyed, but looting was uh, Sorry, the Jewish businesses were to be destroyed, but the looting was prohibited. And also that foreigners um, were not to be touched. Then the, the chaos was unleashed. Uh, tens of thousands of Nazis and regular Germans took to the streets to attack all manifestations of Jewish public and private life in Germany. The name Kristallnacht derives from uh, the streets of Germany the following morning. With over 7,000 Jewish businesses attacked by the SA thugs and the Hitler Youth, the streets of Jewish area were completely covered in broken glass. But the pogrom was far more violent than just window smashing. 29 department stores were destroyed. Over 250 synagogues were burnt down. 1,400 more were attacked. Uh, Almost every Jewish burial ground in Germany was defiled. Religious texts and um, other, other things from synagogues were taken out and burnt, or if they were valuable or of historical importance, they were confiscated by the regime. Jewish homes were attacked and destroyed. There was also a huge amount of violence against people. Uh, According to Gerald Schwab, 91 people were murdered, and a number of people, including entire families, committed suicides to escape the pogrom. There were also a number of rapes, um, some of which were actually punished, which was one of the few legal consequences of the night's events. But the perpetrators were tried not for rape, but for breaking the Nazi miscegenation codes, the laws that were codified in the Nuremberg laws. Um, Their their crime was against German blood, not against um, Jewish women. Schwab states that so much glass was broken, it amounted to almost half of the Belgian glass industry's annual output, um, which, which is most German glass was produced in Belgium. So yeah, like half of what it would take in a year was destroyed in one night. <clears throat> the total damage was about 1 billion Reichsmarks, 
which would be about $7 billion today. The following day, the government released a statement praising the, quote, understandable and justifiable indignation following the odious Jewish assassination in Paris. Um, But they also appealed for an end to the violence, promising that the government would continue this campaign through legislative means. And actually, this had already begun. Starting on Kristallnacht, the government arrested 30,000 Jewish men and sent them to concentration camps. Thousands of them would die from torture, malnutrition, disease, or execution over the following year. There was also the issue of damages. German insurers felt obliged to pay out to their Jewish customers, not out of any sense of sort of legal or moral obligation, but because not doing so would risk damaging their trust with customers overseas. Yet the cost was absolutely astronomical, and many of the insurance providers were furious with the Nazi party for having bought about this huge avoidable expense. Even Nazis like Goering and the Minister of Economics, Walter Funk, were, were furious with Goebbels at the economic cost of the, of the Kristallnacht and the huge amount of merchandise that was destroyed. Yet Goebbels had a solution, one that would add serious insults to these devastating injuries. The Jews themselves were to bear the financial cost of Kristallnacht, with a collective fine of one billion Reichsmarks uh, levelled against the Jewish population of about half a million people. I tried to work that out in today's money, and I think that's the equivalent of about $14,000 for every Jewish man, woman and child in Germany, many of whom were obviously already impoverished and struggling to survive under the existing laws. Over the following months, Jews were banned from having any sort of wholesale or retail business. They were banned from owning stocks and shares. They were forced to sell any sort of precious metals or jewellery they had. Um, And they were banned from theatres, cinemas, concert halls. Jewish newspapers were shut down. Car ownership was banned for Jews. Special tax rates were introduced. And there were even restrictions about when Jews could use park benches. From from the largest to the littlest, the the entire... um, so Jewish public and private life was, was restricted in these, in these terrible ways. Von Rath, meanwhile, under, underwent the celebrations of a martyr. Following a ceremony in Paris, during which his coffin was draped in a swastika, his body was loaded onto a train bound for Germany. It crawled through the country at 12 miles per hour, passing stations that were draped in black cloth, swastikas flying at half-mast, their platforms lined with dignitaries before arriving in Dusseldorf, where it lay in state, as thousands shuffled past to show their respects. The following day, November 17th, his funeral was held, ten days after he was shot, and eight days since Kristallnacht. On the front row of the service sat his parents, and between them, Adolf Hitler. The story is hideous, and the, the consequences of the shooting are perhaps in retrospect predictable. The Nazi campaign was built on the careful manipulation of public emotion and popular bigotries. But um, given the nature of the show, you might be wondering where this sort of homosexuality comes into this story. Well, in the short term, Grinspan's life was almost certainly saved by the embassy staff who had handed them over to the French police, ensuring that he was prosecuted in France. And ironically, because he wasn't a German citizen, he couldn't be extradited to Germany for trial. And he was represented by a sort of celebrity socialist lawyer of his day who took on high profile and often unpopular cases He's like a sort of 1930s Michael Mansfield character for for English listeners. Um, This lawyer was called Vincent de Moro Giaffari, 
<clears throat> and Grinspan wanted to plead his case as it was, as a political assassination that was morally justified, saying, quote, It is not a crime to be Jewish. I am not a dog. I have the right to live. My people have a right to exist on this earth. Yet everywhere we are hunted down like animals. But given his literal guilt was unquestionable, it would almost certainly have led to his conviction, um, although he would probably have been spared the death penalty on account of his age, but he would have spent the rest of his life in jail. Mauro Ghiaffari, on the other hand, um, decided on a different tack, one which was at least tactically something of a masterstroke. The Nazis were preparing to make his, his trial into a global show trial and to point the finger at this sort of fictitious Jewish conspiracy that lay behind the assassination. And they appointed anti-Semitic lawyers and propagandists, uh, Wolfgang Diverge and Friedrich Grimm. But Moro Ghiaferi decided to undermine this prosecution by making the case that this was not a political crime, but a crime of passion, a personal affair. In doing so, it would force the Nazis to downplay or even postpone the trial and would relieve some internal political pressure on German Jews. And it would, if successful, lead to Herschel's acquittal, given his age. So Mauro Ghiaferi suggested to Herschel what he thought had happened. And this was his, his story that he created, I guess. Vom Rath had um, picked up the teenage Herschel at Tuva Bien. The two had perhaps walked the streets a while chatting. The boy was poor but attractive. He'd bought him a drink, maybe, or offered him some money to accompany him into a hotel. After they'd had sex, Vom Rath had refused to pay him what he was owed, and Herschel had sought him out and killed him in revenge. Or even better, the lawyer imagined, they had been lovers, and Vom Rath had promised to sort out Herschel's immigration status, but then having abandoned him, Herschel had his revenge. Herschel refused to take up this line of defence, to, in his mind, lower himself uh, from being this Jewish avenger of historical importance to being this sort of spurned little queer lover. Uh, no matter spring little like, queer rent boy <clears throat> yeah uh, no matter that it might actually save his own life or or also that of other Jews in Germany and the, the communist anti-fascist uh, Eric Wollenberg wrote after the war that he'd met Mauro Ghiaferi on the streets during the preparations for the trial <clears throat> and um, and the, the lawyer had been sort of furious that his client had refused this counsel but he, he did admit to him that it wasn't true Herschel had told his own lawyers, in fact, that he was a virgin. Nevertheless, it it, it would have been a very canny defence, um, and preparations for this trial sort of dragged on, despite the defendant's desire to have his day in court. And at both both sides, at various times, either sort of prolonged the process or at times demanded it got sped up according to their own political needs. But he wasn't actually to have his day in court because on the tenth of May, nineteen forty. The Battle of France began with a, a German blitzkrieg into, into French territory. And in just, uh, in just over a month, Paris had fallen to the invaders. The Nazis dispatched their lawyers to France to find him, and he was found in Vichy, France. He was handed over to the SS and illegally extradited to Berlin for interrogation by no lesser figure than Adolf Eichmann. Finally, the, the Nazis would have their show trial where they could lay out the conspiracy. The international jury had fired fir- the first shot in the war by sending their young fall guy to assassinate the German diplomat, and that everything that followed was mere retaliation. What's more, they had an assassin who was desperate to admit that he, a Jew, had killed von Rath for being German. Yet incredibly, Herschel denied them this opportunity. <clears throat> um, when he was interrogated by the Gestapo, he told them that von Rath had indeed seduced him. 
What's more, he said, what started off as a commercial transaction had deepened into love. Von Rath, who um, it, it's probably true he was sort of beginning to have these doubts about the Nazi regime at the time, uh, had told his, his lover that he could prevent his family's expulsion from Hanover. And when he failed to do that, Herschel said he, he went to his work to confront him. And in this sort of heated lover's argument that followed, Herschel had shot his, his older lover. Goebbels was absolutely furious that Herschel's testimony would scupper the show trial. Uh, they couldn't risk putting him on the stand if he was to tell the world that the, the patriot, the, the Nazi martyr, Von Rath, who they'd made such a fuss over, was actually the lover of uh, a young Jewish boy. Um, and what's more, a sort of um, sexual predator, I guess. <clears throat> uh, Goebbels wrote in his diary, quote, Once again, it can be demonstrated with what perfidious infamy the Jews can give one the slip when one wishes to seize them by the scruff of the neck. The Nazi justice ministry itself um, fucked up the case, essentially, because when they heard Grinspan's testimony, they added a charge to his indictment under the infamous paragraph 175 sodomy laws, which obviously therefore implicated von Rath themselves. But perhaps Goebbels was concerned for another reason. During the fall of Paris, Gestapo investigators had seized Mauro Ghiaferi's case files. Uh, and in it was a letter from a young, uh, sorry, from a German Jewish doctor who was um, then living in Tel Aviv, claiming that he'd actually treated von Rath in Berlin upon his return from Calcutta, not for dysentery, as was claimed, but for rectal gonorrhea that had been contracted during uh, homosexual anal sex. The Gestapo also reported a number of serious rumours. Von Rath was well known on the Parisian gay scene, fondly remembered by the nicknames Madame Ambassador. And uh, rather than the sort of traditional diplomat's sobriquet, you know, of our man in Paris or whatever, uh, Von Rath was referred to on the scene as Notre Dame de Paris, Our Lady of Paris. The French writer and very bad gay André Gide claimed in his diaries that Von Rath and Grinspan had met in a, a popular gay bar called Berthe la Trois, and that they'd been lovers. On the one hand, um, Gide is, is the sort of man to know, to know this sort of information. But on the other hand, he's also the sort of man to sort of fantasize about this sort of relationship. So uh, whether we take that as true or not is, um, <clears throat> is a matter of, I guess, historical debate. Um, certainly some, some major historians have, do, do believe that that was the case. Uh, but in general, the consensus is against it. Anyway, however, um, Von Roth's younger brother, Gustav, had also been convicted recently or court-martialed, in fact, in the Wehrmacht for homosexuality. So it simply wasn't worth the risk to sort of press ahead the trial. And in May 1942, Goebbels recorded in his diary that the trial had been postponed into the following autumn. So what happened to Herschel? Well, the truth is we, we just don't know. The last record we have of him for sure is late 1942, when a letter from Foreign Minister von Ribbentrop to the German ambassador in France um, suggests that he's probably still alive. And certainly there would have been value in keeping him alive as a prisoner at that stage. And without a direct order to kill him from the top, it would have been a very bold SS officer who had let him die on his watch. Historical consensus is that he probably died in late 1942 or early 1943 at uh, Sachsenhausen concentration camp although it's possible that he may have been killed in the many massacres of prisoners in the last six months before the war's end. 
and the official Allied records give his date of death as um, May the 8th, 1945, which was VE Day, which is a sort of symbolic formality of people who'd gone missing. But in, tw- uh, in 2016, however, a photo resurfaced in the archives in Vienna of a protest in 1946 at a displaced persons camp in, in the south of Germany where Jewish Holocaust survivors were protesting for their right to emigrate to Palestine. And the, the archivists and historians who turned the photo up ran it through this facial recognition software, mm-hmm. which delivered a, a 95% chance the man in the photo facing the camera is, is Herschel, which is as high a percentage as the, the software can deliver. He would have been 27 at the time. And I've seen the photo and it, it does look like him, but I, I wouldn't go further than that. I don't know if you can claim more than that. But I think a good postscript to end the episode on is from um, Eichmann in Jerusalem, Hannah Arendt's account of the trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1961. Eichmann, of course, had, had interrogated him. <clears throat> um, and, but he, he was tried more generally for his role in the Holocaust. And in, in Eichmann in Jerusalem, she describes, um, she describes, quote, an old man wearing his tr- the traditional Jewish skull cap, small, very frail, with sparse white hair and beard. And he'd come to the trial to tell his story. The man was a Jewish tailor from Hanover, Zendel Grinspan, father of the famous Herschel. He, along with his, his whole family, had escaped from Poland to the Soviet Union, and they had all, except from his daughter, survived the war before emigrating to Palestine in the aftermath. Arendt describes uh, his testimony, the testimony of their expulsion in 38 as follows, and I think I'll just read the entire bit because it's, um, it's quite moving. This story took no more than perhaps 10 minutes to tell, and when it was over, the senseless, needless destruction of 27 years in less than 24 hours, one thought foolishly, everyone, everyone should have his day in court only to find out in the endless sessions that followed how difficult it was to tell the story, that, at least outside the transforming realm of poetry, it needed a purity of soul, an unmirrored, unreflected innocence of heart and mind that only the righteous possess. No one, either before or after, was to equal the shining honesty of Sindel Grinspan. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making Bad Gaze. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com and in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and t-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, Now, every episode we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did-you-know fact from the book. And so today's is... Did you know that the uh, renowned architect Philip Johnson believed as late as 1964 that Hitler was a better leader than Roosevelt? For the full story, pre-order Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgazepod.com slash book. Well, thank you for telling us that story, Hugh. Um, Very well told, as always. Um, A very complicated and fascinating and disturbing story. 
Um, I, I wonder, it's interesting, we, we usually end our episodes by asking the two big questions, bad yes or no, gay yes or no. In this case, I think bad yes or no is pretty easy to answer, a, a literal Nazi. Um, but what's maybe more interesting to talk about is whether or not we think Von Rath was actually gay. Yeah. Well, on the issue of bad, um, yeah, of course, obviously, um, a literal Nazi, with one caveat, which I'm saying not to sort of try and redeem him in any way, but just because it adds something to the discussion of the trial, um, but I don't think it should change our opinion on him, but that there is some circumstantial evidence that Von Roth was um, becoming becoming more critical of the Nazi party as he grew older. Um, for example, despite the enormous propaganda value of them, they could only actually find a single photo of him in in uniform, his SA uniform, and that was from his very early university days. Um, and also that the there was apparently some some suggestion that the Gestapo were actually surveilling him prior to his death, um, which suggests that he might be becoming either more sympathetic towards Jews or um, or more critical of the party. Um, and I, I say that not, of course, to redeem him, but just to say that it adds some complication to them when they're bringing it to trial, that they become worried that it might turn out that he wasn't the perfect martyr. Um, but also by the same token, there is some suggestion, uh, some evidence from someone he worked with who said that he, um, the while he did sort of regret, supposedly regret the persecution of Jews, um, he also regards it as as necessary for the sort of national renewal of the the Volksgemeinschaft, the sort of national community of the German race. Um, but yeah, I, I have no hesitation in saying that he was clearly a committed Nazi and um, and bad. With regards to whether he was gay or not, um, it is quite hard to tell because there's so much to gain and to lose from both sides in the in the trial process afterwards. We were suggesting that he was or wasn't gay. Um, it seems to me very unlikely that, that Grinspan and Von Rath knew each other before the day that Herschel shot him. Um, there's no, there's no evidence or the suggestions or when he arrived at the embassy, he, he didn't ask for Von Rath by name. Some historians, and there are historians who, who believe that they did have a relationship. And these historians claim that they, that he probably knew that he was the only one working in that particular department on a day. So he knew they could get him. Um, but it seems to me quite unlikely. Um, what seems more likely to me, although again not provable, is that is that Vincent de Moro Giaferi was sort of tipped off about von Roth's homosexuality, and that suggested a defence for for Herschel that 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 would at least would have raised the possibility if he had evidence that von Roth was gay that that would have collapsed the trial or postponed it as it did in the end. And that that was a, a good weapon to use because there was some evidence behind it, um, and that he didn't that he might not necessarily have told Herschel that he had had that evidence, um, but would have brought it out at trial. So my suspicion is, or my I, I think I'll come down to the conclusion that I don't think Grinspan was, and I don't think that they had the relationship. But I think that there is a a, a distinct possibility that Von Rath was. And that that's why Mauro Giaferi built his case around it. Um, but uh, it's very difficult to know either way. And and the reason I'd chosen for this episode was because I thought it was interesting um, that homosexuality was used as a weapon in this way, um, and the effect that it had upon the aftermath of the of, of Crystal Nut. 
That's a really interesting point. And I think, I mean, I think many of us are used to this idea of the gay panic defense. Um, you know, the most infamous one being uh, the defense of Dan White for the murder of Harvey Milk. Uh, this sort of use of the idea of a gay um, sexual encounter gone wrong to excuse murder. And I think most of us are very used to that being a tool of, um, if not the organized political right, then at least right-wing or reactionary forces that are trying to get people off for murdering gay or trans. It's important to say that that's often used um, against trans women as well, uh, people, and, and to excuse their murders. But here we have this case where the gay panic defense or some version of the gay panic defense is being invoked for the some version or attempted to invoke for some version of the political good. Um, it, is, is this that sort of conflict that you're talking about there as you talk about um, the uh, the lawyer and how, how this sort of played out? To an extent, yeah. I mean, I think, I think um, Mara Gheferi's, position was actually much wider than just Herschel. I think his aim was not just to defend Herschel, but to try and relieve some of the pressure on German Jews um, by destroying the show trial, because the show trial was going to make this case that, that her, not just that Herschel did it, but that he was um, the agent of a conspiracy of international jury, and that by offering this defence, it would prevent the show trial going ahead in the way that the Nazis wanted. Um, it would be it would disrupt that too much. So as a result, it would, you know, if I had been a show trial and um, and Grinspan had gone ahead with his defense without Mara Gieferius's lawyer, then I think that it could have, there could have been another similar event to Crystal Nacht as a result if he was found guilty, which he would have been found guilty because he, he did kill him. So I think that was partly Mara Gieferius's defense and he was... Um, uh, th- there was money uh, given to to his defence caused by um, by American political activists uh, led by Dorothy Thompson, um, which I think was was part of that whole strategy. Um, put simply, yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess that um, that the the idea that von Roth was a homosexual was a big enough slur to put the Nazis off running that trial, um, and it, and yeah, it did work. As for the question of um, whether that strategy might have worked or could have worked um, if the trial had actually be, been run through, uh, you just mentioned the fact that you think it, it might actually not have. Do you want to speak a little bit more about that? No, I think it would have. I think, I think, I think um, Mauro Gieferi's work, um, uh, sort of strategy would have worked. I mean, it worked in the, to the extent that it put off the trial. And then I think if we'd gone to trial, I think because it would have happened in France and not under Germany, and there would have been a, the opportunity for him to bring some of this evidence. If he'd managed to bring, for example, the medical case, or to have done more digging and brought up some some evidence, which seems that there was evidence that he was sort of known around the gay scene, that would have really um, put a cat among the pigeons for the the uh, the the Nazis' case that. Um, that he, that, that that not only was he sort of not this this hero and this martyr, but it would have perhaps worked in terms of proving that it was a crime of passion. Um, I don't think it was actually true, but I think it was. Um, yeah, it could have it could have definitely 
disrupted the, the idea that this was a political crime enough um, to to be successful. And another thing to point out, of course, is that Vincent de Maro Ghiaferi was an extremely competent lawyer. He was um, he only lost one case in his entire life, which was a a serial killer who was um, was clearly guilty. And he took on unpopular um, political causes. He took on uh, yeah, he was a campaigning lawyer, um, as you still get today. That took on political cases. Well, I guess that brings us to the part where I ask what sources you used to uh, research this and, and where people should look more if they want to find out more about the story of Ernst von Rath. Yeah, the, um, the two main sources I used uh, for this were The Day the Holocaust Began, The Odyssey of Herschel Grinspan by Gerald Schwab, and The Short, Strange Life of Herschel Grinspan, A Boy Avenger, A Nazi Diplomat, and A Murder in Paris by Jonathan Kirsch. And if you prefer to listen rather than to read, there's actually quite an interesting discussion between uh, Jonathan Kirsch and the historian Alan E. Steinweiss uh, that I watched on the website of the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And we'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Bad Gaze Pod. You can follow me at Ben Writes Things. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.